Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is on Luis Buñuel's 1960 film, La Joven, or The Young One. We open with Epistrophe, from Eric Dolphy's Last Date, recorded in Holland in 1964. Epistrophe means a turning about, and applied to the young one, a constant shift of moral perspective with no settled view. As with our recent show on the 1954 Salt of the Earth, here is another forgotten film that seems a kind of impossibility. Made by a Spanish filmmaker, the young one is set in the rural south off the Carolina coast, but filmed near Acapulco, at the height of the civil rights movement. It's produced by an American, based on a story by an American writer, scripted with a Canadian-American who had been blacklisted by Hollywood using American actors. The film's principal point of view is that of a black jazz clarinetist named Traver on the run from a lynching over the false accusation of raping a white woman. And that's not the half of it. La Joven, or The Young One, is very loosely based on a Peter Matheson short story from 1957 called Traveling Man. Matheson's story is a simplistic, if horrifying, hide-and-seek narrative where a white hunter stalks and is stalked by a black chain gang escapee. All action, tension, and release. La Joven offers deeper characterization, as well as a shift in focus, via the title, From Traver, the Traveling Man, to Evelyn, or Evie, the Young One. And it's how the men in the movie hunt or present as fathers for the orphaned Evie that makes this a work of critical depth. We learn who these men are through their responses to Evie, and we learn about a culture, ours, where this is status quo. Throughout the show, we'll return to Eric Dolphy's music, using songs where he plays both the soprano and bass clarinet. Think of it as a stand-in for Traver. Joining us to discuss Luis Buñuel and his film La Joven is Jonathan Reisner, assistant professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at Indiana University in Bloomington. His book, Blood Circuits, Contemporary Argentine Horror Cinema, is forthcoming from SUNY Press. Called an iconoclast, moralist, and revolutionary, Bunuel is probably best known in the U.S. for his 1972 film, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. For 48 years, his work challenged conventional attitudes about society, undermined bourgeois optimism, and forced audiences to doubt the tenets of the established order. We begin with a bit of the nomadic Bunuel biography, before finding our way to the movie proper, and a consideration of how the racist and misogynistic hierarchies presented in a 58-year-old movie have yet to be overcome. And now, Luis Bunuel and The Young One on Interchange on WFHB. Can you give us a little bit of a background on the filmmaker? Sure thing. So, uh, Luis Bunuel was a Spanish filmmaker, and he was born in a small town called Calanda in the province of Turiel. And Turiel, Turiel is, uh, is in the autonomous community of Aragon, uh, there aren't states in, in Spain, but there are 17 autonomous communities in Aragons in the northeast. Um, Boonwell was born into a, a large family. He had six siblings. And when he was, he was only a few months old, he and his family moved to, 
to Zaragoza, which is which is a, a large city in uh, in Spain and is also in in the autonomous community of Aragon. Uh, Bunuel's family was extremely wealthy and and deeply religious. Uh, I've read that Bunuel, uh, up until he until he was about sixteen years of of age, he took uh, communion every day mm. and eventually became. Came disillusioned with religion, um, and he, of course, was Catholic, uh, being in Spain. Uh, eventually, Bunuel moved to Madrid. Uh, I assume when he was in his late teens, early twenties, and attended the University of Madrid, which is better known as uh, Complutense. And when he was at the University of Madrid, uh, it was there that he befriended uh, Federico Garcia Lorca, the Andalusian poet, mm. as well as Salvador Dali. Um, the, the infamous surrealist and, uh, Salvador Dali and, and Bunuel eventually collaborated on making Bunuel's first film, uh, Unchien Andalou, uh, which is still pretty well known, pretty, pretty famous film. Um, can you but, translate that for us? Oh, uh, sure. The Andalusian dog. Okay. Um, but you can see from the early years that there's this mix of, Factors that sometimes play out in a lot of Bunuel's film, and, and and in some ways, including the young one. So you have the element of 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 a wealthy uh, bourgeois family, uh, or you could say uh, bourgeois values that are um, oftentimes skewered or, or scrutinized in some way in Bunuel's films. Uh, I would say it's definitely the case in in the young one. Um, there's also this preoccupation with with religion mm-hmm. and its limits, and that happens in the young one with. Uh, the character of, of Reverend Fleetwood uh, and his take on, on the relationship between uh, Miller and, and Evelyn. I won't get to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. But also there's this uh, element of surrealism sometimes, so the way that Bunuel approaches certain topics. And there isn't necessarily a, a pure moment of surrealism in The Young One. However, there's a moment when a, a raccoon attacks a chicken. <laughs> and in some ways, that moment is surrealistic because it doesn't fit. Um, and in some ways, it's reminiscent of another famous surrealist moment uh, from another Bunuel film uh, called Los Ovidados. Mm. Um, to give a little more context about Bunuel, so uh, in addition to his life in Spain, I think it's important to take into account that uh, he was a filmmaker of international stature and in some ways was very nomadic uh, for different reasons. So uh, his first film that he made with Dali uh, he made it in Paris, and with Unchien Andalou, he was invited to uh, to join André Barton's uh, surrealist group. Um, he would eventually make another film in France, uh, and after which he he kind of moved between different places. So from from Paris, uh, he worked uh, some in Hollywood briefly, and he worked in New York at uh, at MoMA. Um, and he was also going back to Spain and was making uh, films there, making films during the Spanish Civil War, and went back to Hollywood and, and stayed in the United States because of the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War and the coming to power of uh, Francisco Franco. Uh, he, he just didn't return to, to Spain for for at least a few decades. Um, and, and when he was in the United States, Manuel wasn't able to really make a film uh, he did do a number of different jobs in Hollywood. He he worked on dubbing. Uh, he did some script writing. Uh, but eventually, uh, he left for Mexico uh, at the end of the 1940s. And at that time, Mexico was uh, 
was was enjoying its uh, golden age of cinema. So the golden age of Mexican cinema usually is conceived uh, as being from about 1936 till about 1952, more or less. Mm. Uh, Buñuel, when he went to Mexico, he didn't immediately start making movies, but once he did start making movies, he uh, would enjoy a, a kind of a sustained rhythm of making movies. Um, and it's it's interesting because uh, some of the best films, some of the, the some of the films that Mexican critics considered to be the best Mexican films, or even uh, Latin American films, were directed by uh, Buñuel, who was a Spanish director. Um, mm. And those films include Los Olvidados, uh, Onasarin, um, and we can connect this kind of uh, this these kinds of this kind of nomadic. Uh, trajectory of a boom well, uh, he would eventually go back to Spain and make movies and he would go back to France and make movies. But when he was in Mexico, he made movies there as well. And the young one comes out of that. This is Interchange. We're talking about Spanish filmmaker Luis Buñuel's 1960 film La Joven or The Young One. Set in the American South but filmed near Acapulco in Mexico produced and co-written by Americans. The film takes the outsider's perspective in considering social norms. So The Young One was produced in 1960, and it is is a Mexican film in many respects. It was uh, produced by a Mexican company, but at the same time, those things are often complicated with international filmmakers. So Buñuel's Spanish... The script was written by Buñuel along with uh, Peter Matheson, uh, Hugo Butler, who are two Americans uh, who are living in exile in Mexico um, during the Cold War and, and given what was going on with mm-hmm. McCarthyism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I didn't that, know Matheson was in exile. Yeah, that's a very well-known author as well, right? Yeah, yeah. it's in, pretty interesting. And, and the movie is based on a short story by Matheson. Mm. So, Traveling Man or something yeah, like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and... So, and this trio worked together also to make the only other English language film that Buñuel well made, and that was Robinson Crusoe hmm. in, in 19, 1954. Um, so there's all these kinds of elements that are, that are informing Buñuel's life, but also you can start to see those play out a little bit in, uh, in the young one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can talk about this more, you know, what's at stake in having an outsider's perspective, uh, of, the United States. So right. what does that mean? Um, so Buñuel is, is definitely in the mix. He's the director, but you also have Hugo Butler and you also have Peter Matheson. Um, they're, they're writing the script. So there is this kind of collaborative element to it. And we can also bring a th- uh, another collaborator into it. And it's hard to convey it uh, through the radio, <laughs> but uh, Gabriel Figueroa is the cinematographer of The Young One. And he was a, a collaborator of Buñuel and other different films. And he's he's definitely worth worth uh worth mentioning he's kind of come coming to his own name uh over the past decade uh for his style mm. yeah so that's a, a a film that has a lot of hands in it indeed and yeah yeah uh and uh, as we'll talk about the the contents of the film it's interesting um to think of these various perspectives, as you say, from the outside and inside of the U.S., uh, but a film made in Mexico that is primarily about American attitudes, right? American racism, for the most part. An American... Um, hmm. I don't know if the sex elements in the film are specifically... Um, 
geographical you know if if men are men everywhere and sure. and they consider young girls objects uh, as they come into their own everywhere if that's a, a common aspect to the film um but uh, it, it is a, it is a film about american racism as much as anything else is that its primary or is there more i mean obviously there's more to it than that uh, uh, from a man who i think has a politics that is more than about racism Definitely. Those, uh, the film has so many different layers to it, and it bears a particular relevance to the things that are happening today. Mm-hmm. Um, not that those things weren't being discussed when the film was originally made, but the, the film provides another object uh, of discussion to talk about questions of, of race uh, and sexuality, or in some ways the lack thereof in this film. Mm-hmm. But also there's a, a question of a dynamics of power and, and, and sexuality uh, between the characters, uh, that makes that makes the film such a compelling, uh, a compelling object uh, to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about the film, and let's give us uh, give us a summary of of what's happening. Sure. So, so the young one is is set on the coast of either North Carolina or South Carolina during the 1950s. It's not clear which which state. Um, and the, the movie begins with Traver. And and Traver is running, uh, running away from a large hotel that is that appears to be part of a resort. And Traver's a, a black musician. Uh, he's a clarinet player who plays in an orchestra. And this orchestra is touring the southern United States. Uh, and it's also worth mentioning that Traver uh, is from the north. And so at the beginning of the film, Traver's running. And on the soundtrack, one hears voices from... Uh, what one can presume is a lynch mob uh, accusing him of, of raping a white woman and, and saying what they're going to do to him. Him, but someone told me what he looked like. He's black. Come on, Willie, let's go. This is going to be some fun. Uh, Trevor uh, runs away from the hotel onto a dock and gets into a small motorboat and leaves uh, leaves the hotel and eventually arrives at a small at a small island. And uh, it's there that Trevor spots uh, Miller. And Miller's an, an an older white man. He's probably in his, I would say, his late forties, early fifties, and he's a, the game warden on the small island. Uh, in addition to Miller on the island, there's a young woman who who lives with Miller, and her name is Evelyn. And it's not clear how old she is. She's it appears to be about eleven, twelve, thirteen years old. And Evelyn is the granddaughter of a man with whom Miller used to work. Um, and that man's name was Pee Wee, and Pee Wee dies, and Miller's supposed to be taking care of Evelyn. Uh, Evelyn, although Traver's kind of spying on Evelyn and Miller at first, and Evelyn and Traver e- in- encounter each other. They eventually become friends, and uh, Evelyn doesn't have the same prejudices against black people that, that Miller has. In some ways, she's, she's innocent. That's part of her innocence. Uh, however, Miller wants to kill Traver, and he hunts him uh, on, on the island, and uh, eventually captures him. 
But there's a uh, a reverend from 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 a nearby city, Reverend Fleetwood, and he eventually comes to the island. He wants to to check on Evelyn, and he also uh, persuades Miller to let Traver go. We're going to take a look at some specific scenes and try to talk a little bit about how they they um, uh, I guess kind of give us a, a sense of of what the movie is trying to do. Um, so we you mentioned Evelyn, and there is no. There's no other thing happening in here except for these relationships as they play out in this, in this, I guess, plot device, right? Of Traver, the, uh, escaped, uh, black musician, jazz musician, right? Yes. Uh, which is important. I'm sure yes, important. That's a great point. He's a jazz musician, uh, who's escaped to an island and is hiding and has, as Miller will say at some point, some sass or attitude. <laughs> Right, like it's it's fascinating that the the dialogue that we're we're gonna have to to talk about and and of course prepare our listeners for uh, as well. Um, but all this happening on this island is like this um, a petri dish of a sort, I suppose. As we as we examine how these things come together and the different attitudes and uh, to to race and to uh, sexuality um, and religion. <laughs> for a break. This is Something Sweet, Something Tender by Eric Dolphy, off of the 1964 album Out to Lunch. More on Luis Bunuel's 1960 film The Young One, which explores racism and misogyny in the American South when Interchange returns. to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Our topic tonight is the 1960 film by Luis Bunuel, La Joven, or The Young One. Our guest is Jonathan Reisner, an assistant professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese at Indiana University. In this segment, we'll hear a clip from the film where Miller, the game warden and de facto guardian of the orphaned Evie, discovers she just might be ripe for the picking. I guess we're going to start with a clip that uh, deals with Evelyn, uh, uh, Evie, or Evie, as I don't remember exactly how, how Miller says it, but uh, so she is kind of a ward of a man who has no actual relation to her. Um, and the, 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 the clip we're going to see is where Miller uh, realizes she's becoming a woman. Yes, there's this moment where Miller sees that she's 
become, quote, as he, in his own words, a real woman because of her, again, his words, because of her flesh. Um, it's hard to convey uh, through words what all is going on here with the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question of religion is, is all over the place. It's a recycling of the Old, Old Testament myth of Genesis. And uh, Miller's, Miller's sitting down and he has an apple. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where Evelyn uh, comes, into, comes into the light, comes closer to him. And the camera approaches Evelyn. It's a close-up. And, and then the camera, uh, there's a cut and the camera swings. And it shows a close-up uh, of Miller's face. And it's the moment when he realizes that, that she has become a woman. If we had held on just a little longer, he'd have seen you a real woman, Evie. Yes, sir. A real woman. You growing up, baby, and I never noticed. How old are you? I used to know my mom's alive before Grants brought me out here. You know they tell the age of a horse by his teeth, but with a woman or a hog, it's it's flesh and weight that counts. Give me your leg. Yeah, you fleshing out at that. I gotta go and clean the dishes. You look good. I'll have to admit that. You gotta learn to go around like this all the time. I mean, it's okay for you to be out here looking like a swamp rat. But in town, the kids will make fun of you. We can't have that, can we? Hey, wait a minute. Oh, Abby. What's the matter? Did it tickle? Um, so again, there's this Old Testament myth. There's the apple. Uh, there's the man Miller, uh, and there's and there's the woman Evelyn, and of course Eve, Evelyn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's also a number of different other th- different other elements that that are re- that repeat themselves in the film, but also repeat themselves across Boonwell's films, and that's the use of close-ups. Uh, that that close-ups are also are happening when the when the camera's traveling. Um, there's also something fascinating in the same scene. There's the foot fetish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boonwell had a foot fetish. And you can see that in his other different films. And it happens at least three or four occasions in this film. And there are close-ups of Evelyn's leg. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, of course, and uh, so within the conversation itself, within the dialogue between the two, um, all kinds of issues are playing themselves out here. Uh, there's a question of womanhood and how it's marked. And, of course, uh, Evelyn herself is not the one who's marking her entrance into to, to womanhood. It is it is Miller, uh, and 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 it's 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 his realization. But also, there's a question of how that womanhood is going to be completed. Mm. So obviously, the undertone is it's it's through sex right. um, eventually, but also uh, here in the conversation and throughout the movie, it's it's a question of going to the city and getting her. Uh, accessories like a coat uh, or other clothes to kind of uh, to kind of complete uh, this transformation in, into womanhood. Coming out of that particular scene, it was it was hard just not to to laugh at the way it's 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 
spoken, right? So uh, the fact that he he says, you know, you know how a woman's grown up, uh, not like a horse, which you measure measure the horse's teeth, sure. uh, but like with a woman or a hog, it's flesh that counts. Sure. Like that's how he says it, right? Yes. Like she's gonna, he's gonna see what kind of, like if she's fattened up in the right way or, and that's when he looks at her leg, I think, in particular. Yeah. Um, you've grown up, baby, and I've never noticed. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it is this kind of, this moment, uh, almost of, of an epiphany of sorts for Miller. He's not very kind to, mm. to, to Evelyn, even at the, prior to this moment. Um, and, you know he's not kind. He's not kind uh, to her th- throughout throughout the rest of the movie. It's kind of a perverse kindness, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the things things change. Mm-hmm. Things well, he change. does in that very scene um, try to to take to take her there, like to take her at that very moment. He actually uh, picks her up. Mm-hmm. You see this through the window. It's another another interesting frame of yeah. this this shot, right? So we move outside of the of the house itself mm-hmm. uh, and see them through the window talking. We don't hear this conversation. He's talking at her, basically. She's tried to escape him already. She's holding her hands close to herself, uh, trying to protect herself in some measure. They're talking through the window, and then the camera moves with them. Oh, we don't see them, but we hear them move behind the wall. Mm-hmm towards uh what i assume is a bedroom sure uh, and then the door opens and she runs out yes uh, so that moment when he discovers she's a woman to him mm-hmm. right he's gonna he's gonna lay claim to her right then yes he's gonna finish the job yes yeah and then and that of course her refusal or rebuttal <laughs> makes the narrative and draws the narrative out yeah uh this whole dynamic uh, between an older man and a younger woman oftentimes elicits the comparison with Lolita, mm. uh, Nabokov's novel, or Kubrick's uh, filmic mm. adaptation of the mo- novel, and yeah, there's the there's 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 that uh, dynamic to it. But I would say that Evelyn's a, a little bit more innocent uh, than Lolita's character. Mm, totally, at least in um, that particular scene. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> right, definitely. Right. Um, it's worth thinking about too. So you know, so we have you know we have different protagonists here. So there's a relationship between Evelyn and Miller, and and we have the relationship also between Traver and Evelyn, and um, in in some ways, you know, the the myth, right? The 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 myth between of the hypersexualized uh, black male and uh, and and what that means uh, in particular movies or mm-hmm. or the caricature and. In whatever form, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, there's a there's an absence of of sexuality in the relationship between Traver and Evelyn. They and they have a they have a dynamic of 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 kind of of bantering back and forth with one another. And there is there is one moment in which uh, there's a subjective shot uh, from Traver's perspective of Evelyn's chest, um, but it doesn't have the same resonance. Uh, as the as 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 it, as do the uh, the subjective shots in the perspective of Miller from mm-hmm. Miller of Evelyn's body, yeah. whether it be her foot or her legs or her face or her mm-hmm. chest, mm. it's it's different. That's interesting. Um, so it's when you're talking about the framing, like that that makes everything in terms of the relationship between the two between the the, the three characters mm-hmm. and how that that plays out. That's pretty fascinating. So 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 Bunuel chooses a perspective. For each 
character. Mm-hmm. You know, as we think, who is Miller? We get to see through Miller's eyes what he focuses on in a sense, right? So the leg sure. and how it's an ob- object of uh, pleasure or flesh for him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Traver sees differently, perhaps, and that's in the framing of, of, of Bumwell's choice of, you know, how he shows that particular, like, perspective? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, cinema is notoriously known for objectifying women Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not that Bunuel is is above that. I mean, he he does do that with women's feet oftentimes in his (laughs) film, Uh, but it's a little more complicated Mm -hmm. than this, that, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's worth, it's worth taking a look and paying attention to how current characters are framed uh, in the movie and how that affects their relationship. Yeah, that's fascinating. You you can always look at the dialogue between the Mm characters and listen to the dialogue between the characters, but also the, the camera, the camera informs too, uh, how those relationships, right? Yeah. Or well, we'd have to formed. expect that of a film, I suppose. Yeah. Right? I'll make just a quick analogy simply because as you were talking about it, it struck me as a thing that Charles Burnett plays with a little bit in his Nat Turner movie where, you know, uh, and this, he, he kind of implicates the, um, uh, Styron book of Nat Turner, uh, the Confessions of Nat Turner, where Styron makes, uh, as you say, the, uh, uh, Nat Turner into one of those aggressive sexual, uh, uh, animals that uh-huh. are, that are, uh, out to get the teenage daughter on the, on the plantation. Yeah. And, and, um, so Styron says that Nat Turner kills the daughter because she rejects him. Oh, wow. And so that's an interesting parallel with this particular scenario, the situation that you've got set up on this island in the Carolinas, which would also be in the same period. I mean, South Carolina is where Nat Turner takes place uh-huh. as well. So, um, that's a pretty interesting parallel right there. And I wouldn't know how, you know, how Bunuel would have if Bumwell would have had any particular knowledge of that. I don't think that book came out until 63 or Yeah, yeah. So. You could always think also, I mean, of Birth of a Nation. Mm, sure, of course. Uh, the of course. character as well. And I was trying to jog my memory about other representations of, of uh, uh, black male yeah, characters yeah. being hyper, hypersexualized. Yeah, it's, it's and, a standard. Yeah. Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Interchange. Our guest is Jonathan Reisner of Indiana University. We're talking about Luis Bunuel's 1960 film La Joven, or The Young One, which pits a black jazz musician against a white game warden. But they form a wary respect for each other. We've got another scene to look at, and this one's uh, pretty hot. So uh, set, set this uh, scene up for us. Well, so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Miller hunts Traver on the island and uh, Miller eventually comes across the the small motorboat that Traver used to flee from the hotel and uh, in order to prevent Traver from leaving uh, Miller shoots the boat um, so with this clip Traver's patching up Traver's patching up the boat uh, Miller comes along with Evelyn and uh, Miller and Traver begin talking and it's a it's a it's a fascinating conversation because it uh, is just not a, a single aspect to it. Uh, and there's moments of almost warmth to it, but there's also moments of just acrimonious and blatant racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's and, also interesting because it's actually a conversation. Sure. That's what struck me really was that Miller, mm-hmm. in a sense, uh, maybe baits him a little bit, but he's actually talking to and Travers actually talking to him you know like they they trade barbs i suppose right out of the gate 
Sure. But the point that Miller makes is that you, you're Traver, to Traver, that he's talking back to him mm-hmm. as, uh, he didn't say as an equal, but I think he, he senses that there, right? That Traver is not, he's not going to call him Masser. You know, sure. sure. <laughs> you know, that's clear in the scene. No, it's amazing. And, and it's, it's interesting how Traver's character in some ways embodies how, this is a difficult topic to discuss, but how, Oftentimes, a uh, a character, uh, a black character, doesn't have the same racial baggage based on where they come from. Mm. So, Travers from the north, and there are often comments in the movie where uh, <laughs> Travers is this kind of paradoxical, but he because he's in the south. In some ways, it's kind of re- refreshing to him the racism in the south, which mm. is kind of bizarre uh, for him. He describes a couple occasions where. Uh, in the north, there's discrimination. There's just no no signs. Mm-hmm. So obviously, what he's referring to is signs that in the south that would say uh, service just for whites you know, in restaurants whites or no only yeah, no, no and, coloreds mm-hmm. uh, here, uh, kind of thing. But but again, Trevor doesn't have that same racial baggage. Uh, being from being from the north, he he's not going to 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 cower. Uh, to Miller, he pushes right back, calling him white trash, and 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 yeah, it's it's <laughs> pretty pretty amazing. You know, when I was a baby, I was kind of puny, needed special feed. Got my milk from an old black mammy. No kidding. So did I. You know, my pa used to run a store. Out near that old cotton gin Colonel Mercer used to own outside of town. Soul snuff, fat back, on credit mostly. Tenet worked around there. Till he went broke, that is. Real old Southern family. I seen a lot of n****s. Might say some of them was my friend. But I have yet to see one as fresh as you. Listen, man. You tried to kill me. You stole my motor. And you busted my boat. And you say I'm fresh. What kind of man is that? It ain't no kind of man. It's nothing but a little piece of lousy white trash. Don't call me that. How come, man? You think you're passing? Don't never use it. No matter you do have a gun. Then don't call me a nigger. You know you sure are fresh. But I don't mind. As long as he ain't too fresh, you can count on him. He's got spirit. Turns out the work of fresh nigga. You'd use that word again. I didn't even let him call me that in the army. White trash. I'm telling you, man. Don't press me. And where was you in the army? Italy. Yeah? I was in the 5th, 3rd Division. Red Beach, Salerno, Naples, a whole tour. I went that way. 45th. Supply. We were combat. Suppose we weren't. You know that country? That weather? When the mules were all shot up, we carried that ammo up on our backs. Under fire all the way. Packboards, I remember. Yeah, one night... We've been out of food and supplies all day. No way to get back, either. And this scrawny little guy comes shagging up through the rain with a hundred pounds of supplies. 
Ammo, mortar shells. Had a bullet in his lung. Died in my lap. But he was just a Poe White out of South Carolina. He wasn't no... He wasn't no colored person. Eddie, let's go. But another dynamic, another part of this, a part of the conversation is the commonality between the two characters. So uh, both Traver and Miller fought in World War II and both fought uh, in Europe. Um, and in some ways, that's a commonality that, that creates a, a bond, a brief bond between the characters. Um, and it's kind of worth thinking about because we can think about uh, the young one uh, alongside different movies where this happens. And oftentimes, a, a, a motif, a, a, something that's repeated in, in war movies is this question of creating equals among the soldiers. Um, so you can think of any kind of, of war movie, uh, like uh, maybe more recent ones like Hacksaw Ridge or Inglorious Bastards. So there are characters with with different identities, whether that be a religious identity or racial identity, uh, sometimes sexual identities. And uh, in the battlefield and or in basic training, uh, those identities are oftentimes uh, suppressed uh, for the for the for the good of the of the group, mm-hmm. right? In some ways, there is a there is the black soldier Traver, and there's the white soldier Miller. They have that commonality of fighting in war together, but it has its limits. Mm-hmm. You know, in in this conversation, uh, Miller professes an admiration for Traver's work ethic, but at the same time, he abuses him with these racial epithets. Um, that, that shows the limits, right? It shows the limits. And there's, there's always, there can always be a kind of limit. And if we're going to think about the relevance of what this film has today, you know, in the context of the United States, the question can be asked, you know, we're all Americans, but are there limits to that? Uh, you know, w- what's going on there with that, with, with the American project or American dream or something like that? Uh, you can see those limits drawn in different ways. Mm-hmm. And also you can see those, those limits removed in certain ways if we're going to talk about uh, some good things at times. Um, but I think this movie and this moment in the movie provides an, uh, an opportunity to think about equality and how it's possible in particular contexts in particular ways, but also it has its limits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that happens here definitely in the, in the movie. Well, it's interesting to note work ethic because it's the obvious, again, in, in crafting the script, one understands that as a particular denigration of uh, a, a black person's uh, capacity that that the particular uh, slur against uh, African Americans is that they're lazy, just like sure. all brown people to white people. Yeah, <laughs> Mexicans. The, yeah, you're yeah, a lazy. Yeah. yeah, and here here we note the work ethic. So it's a it's an um, an obvious um, a bit of um, you know it's. It, Pointing to that particular denigration, right? Mm-hmm, pointing definitely. to that particular uh, racial uh, stereotype. It's time for another break. This is What Love, off of Charles Mingus Presents Charles Mingus, released in 1961 and featuring an unusual musical conversation between Mingus on bass and Eric Dolphy on bass clarinet. More coming up about the movie film scholar Jonathan Rosenbaum called an unsung masterpiece and one of the most authentic and pungent of all the films set in the American South. Stay with us. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest tonight is Jonathan Reisner of Indiana University, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese. Our topic is Luis Bunuel's unsung masterpiece, The Young One. In this segment, we'll talk about the ways Traver and Evie are the characters who treat each other with most respect and dignity, and contrast this with the way the white men see them as, at best, creatures to be dominated and used. We've got another clip to look at here. This one, um, about now, this brings in another character, right? Definitely. Actually, two, two other characters. characters, right? Right, right. And I cannot recall the other hunter's name. Actually, his name is Jackson. Jackson, right? So, uh, one of Miller's friends, another hunter by the name of Jackson, comes to the island to hunt Traver. And uh, Miller and the other hunter, again, Jackson, get into a skirmish. Uh, Jackson and Miller have tied up Traver uh, to a post on a porch. And Jackson uh, becomes angry when he sees that Traver has, has fled. He's been able to free himself somehow or someone – he realized that someone has freed Traver. At, at first, he – he um, he accuses uh, Miller of letting, or actually, he re- accuses the Reverend Fleetwood right. of of uh, freeing Traver, and then uh, Jackson realizes uh, it was Evelyn who freed uh, freed Traver. So I, I, sh- I should try to kind of give a synopsis. So again, so we we understand who all is here. Right. So there's Jackson, the other hunter. There's Miller, uh, the game warden, who's also hunting Traver. There's Reverend Fleetwood, and then. There's also Evelyn, and somewhere on the island is Traver. Um, <laughs> right. So, so what, what's interesting here is, of course, so they they get in they they get into a skirmish, uh, Jackson and Miller, and Jackson is not immediately does not immediately understand the nature of Evelyn and uh, Miller's relationship, or I should say, what Miller wants from Evelyn, mm-hmm. and eventually you can see on. Uh, on Jackson's face, uh, he understands that that Miller uh, is Evelyn's um, sexual and romantic mm-hmm. uh, uh, object of desire. So they have a skirmish, but also part of later in this clip, towards the end of the clip, Reverend Fleetwood uh, he's able to persuade Miller to let Traver leave, and it's also fascinating as well because. Reverend Fleetwood talks to Miller about his relationship with Evelyn, and Miller just flat out asks him uh, if he can have this relationship. Yeah, can I with, marry her? Can, can I marry her? And uh, Reverend Fleetwood just says, "Well, I'll just have to talk about it with my colleagues." He doesn't condemn it. Look at that. That's been cut. It's that damn preacher who done it. That's who. Let's go. Yes, what is it? You know right well what it is that got away. You damn well cut him loose. It wasn't I. Then who did? It was you. Damn you, Jackson. You keep your hands off. What was that for? Because you shook me. All right, Ap, I'll get it. It's got to be close. 
because of that leg of his. It's time I shoot on sight. Jackson, there are state and federal laws against your proposed action. Did you hear what I said? Mr. Miller, this colored man is innocent. How do you know? I know the white woman who accuses him, know her well. The poor creature once came to me for help. I couldn't give it. Since her husband died, she drinks. Two years ago, she accused a white man of this same act. Look, Reverend, how would it be if I was to arrange to marry you? That would be something I couldn't prevent, Mr. Miller. Would you still report me? I'd have to seek advice on that from my superiors in the church. Suppose he were guilty, this colored man. Your killing him would be bad enough. But innocent. And of all people to hunt him, yourself. If we're going to think about uh, Boom Wells and how a commentary about religion plays out here, if Reverend Fleetwood is this kind of, uh, this kind of emblem, this kind of metonym of, of religion, then we see the good in some ways of a religious figure and uh, persuading uh, Miller to let Trevor go. So that's that's the racial aspect of a racial aspect of the film, but but not um, preventing yeah. or condemning a perverse relationship uh, between an, an adult man and uh, a twelve year old girl. Why well, it's it it maintains the the way in which Miller himself casts it, which is just as another creature on on the island in mm-hmm. a sense right so he should be able to have the capacity to do what what he wants with another chattel being mm-hmm. uh, which is true. what a woman is uh, at least a, you know has always been until possibly i say possibly because i'm still not sure <laughs> that, that the world has changed its opinion of this particular thing but until very recently right mm-hmm. that women are still uh, and this is the 60s, so where we've we've moved, you know, past the the second sects of Simone de Beauvoir, but we haven't moved into, I suppose, the second wave feminism yet. And and I don't know how it is in Mexico or Spain at the time either. But the focus that I think that um, this is interesting because as as we've talked about it, I've I I had to remember that the film is called The Young One. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, Traver takes the beginning of the film, right? He is the focus of the film as it begins, but the focus is also on sex and transgression. It starts mm-hmm. with transgression and sex and the, what seems a common way to begin in this, uh, culture with the, the black man being accused of rape and, and, and fleeing for his life. But the focus of the film is that, is that centerpiece mm-hmm. of Evelyn. Sure. Of Eve, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. So as the centerpiece, how do these pieces, race and religion, um, which then almost fall away from the center of the, of the film, which is who gets the, the young one? Yeah. She's like a prize. <laughs> yeah. Does Traver, is Traver considered to be able to get her? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the, like, I, it seems like this becomes the actual argument of the film, not mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. you know, not, not religion, but the woman. Mm-hmm. As what? Yeah, as an object. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah does it end, I mean, I don't know how, like, does it come, does it, does it stand anywhere particular in that? And uh, uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of the magic of a lot of Boonwell's films is the ambiguity at the end. Mm-hmm. Travers is able to leave the island on a boat, but also leaving on the boat is uh, Reverend Fleetwood, Evelyn, and Miller. And it's not, it's, it's left open what happens. Mm. Uh, 
But no, that's that's a great way to put it, uh, Evelyn. It definitely is the kind of object of of exchange, the object of desire for Miller, and you know, for a brief moment for for Traver. But yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. <laughs> This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're speaking with IU's Jonathan Reisner about Luis Bunuel's 1960 unsung masterpiece, The Young One, where a 12-year-old girl and a black jazz musician are being hunted, though in very different ways. I think the interesting thing that you point out is the, the way in which Traver speaks with her mm-hmm. is the, the most... Um, human to human yes, conveyance in the it. film, really, where maybe the most respectful yeah, conversation in the film. Yeah, I like that. I mean, they they if Trevor is giving back to Miller in their conversations, then Evelyn is giving it back to Trevor in their conversations. I think um, he says to her, I can't remember the the slang he uses, uh, but you've got a lot of soul in you, or something like that, and uh, she fires right back at him. You haven't got any dogs here, have you? Had one. He died about two months ago. Snake bite. Give me a match. I'm just kind of jumping. You know, this Miller guy might not go for my being here and eating his food and smoking his cigarettes. But you're real cool. I mean, like, I don't even frighten you. How come? You're just like old Jeff. He helped Brass before Miller came. He made me slingshots. Slingshots? Well, I don't dig that kind of jazz, but I'd like to tell you this. You got a whole lot of soul to be so young. I mean, you look just like an angel of mercy, old Trevor. You dig? What's dig? Uh, dig is to understand. Get with it. I told you, there's no one here. Duck season, there's members. They put the tents down the flat. They tip good, too. One, a lawyer give me five dollars to buy me a new dress. Five dollars? Wow! He shot his limit two days in a row. He gave Gramps ten. Ten? Now hold on there. You sure you're not putting me on? No. I give mine to Gramps to buy me a chrome pistol. He came home drunk. Said he couldn't find it. That's gas. He uses it to fill his lamp. What you taking? Getting me something to eat. You've got no right. Ah, you'll never miss it. You leave that be. I can't, sweetie. I just plain can't. In case someone comes after me, I've got to have some ammo to fight him off with. It's been a long time since I've seen one of these. My father used to have one. Hey. Give it to me. Give it to me. Take it easy. You know, kids shouldn't play with guns. We got ourselves a rabbit. That's what I call real togetherness. Mercy. Well, you are, sweetie. You really are. If you knew the trouble I've been through these last few days, you know I really meant it when I called you that. Mr. Miller's going to be real mad at you. Tell you what. Like this gun is old. I mean, it's an antique. But since it's you, I'm going to leave this 20. Now, that should be enough to cover the gas and the rest of this jazz. You haven't got a revolver, have you? That would be even better. No. So there's that dynamic between the equals and how language can allow uh, equality to, or some kind of equality to take place, at least temporarily, 
but yeah, it's that's a it's a good way to put it. It's it's the most it's the most equal relationship between Trevor and Evelyn, and it comes across in the dialogue, and it also comes across in the in the camera work, mm. uh, and how 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 they're shown to interact. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're both um, chattel to the white yeah. to the white male gaze here. That's great. Yeah, that's yeah. a great way to put it. Yeah. And yeah. The, yeah. Okay. And they're able to kind of subvert those things, subvert mm-hmm. that gaze in different ways, albeit temporarily. Um <laughs> because it's, you know, there's a power dynamic with the with framing and and the way the camera's put. Uh and that can subvert, you know, power temporarily, but you know, at, at the end of the film and at the end of the day, I mean, mm. that power dynamic still it's still maintained in some ways. Mm. Does, is Bonuel a, uh, a a filmmaker of a political design generally, or does he have more? I mean, I know the, it's the discreet charm of the the bourgeoisie is mm-hmm. is probably his most well known film. Is that right? Or yeah, I, I think so. Uh, speaking in general, I mean his his other films like uh, like Los Olvidados and uh, El Nazarene. Um, Let's see here, Viriana. Uh, there's uh, there's always a kind of political element to his films, but just with just how race and sex and politics are are intertwined here, and the young one, uh, religion is also is oftentimes intertwined uh, with politics and with sex uh, to make to make complicated films, and in some ways that makes Boomwell a. Uh, of a, a, a director of, of a particular kind of stature, dare I say, an auteur. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Now it strikes me again that the island makes sense here too, right? It's it's uh, in a Shakespearean way, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the 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 crash on the island opens yeah. up new possibilities for these particular relationships. They 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 play out in the stereotypical way, mm-hmm. uh, but they also have to reveal things about themselves. That's a great way to put it. I mean, in some ways, that the island can be a kind of, a kind of Eden, uh, a kind of utopia, but also a dystopia. Yeah. Uh, because power can be subverted, but also power can be imposed. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah. No, it's a, uh, it's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we did it. Yeah, indeed. And uh, you know, just maybe a final note. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Bunuel usually in in. Uh, books on world cinema. He's one of the only directors from a Spanish-speaking country that's given a kind of alter status. I think mm. that's kind of changing uh, with Pedro Almodovar. Mm. But Boonwell is oftentimes considered uh, one of the few uh, respected film directors from a Spanish-speaking country. Now you said auteur there. As far as I know, this is uh, a, a phrase that me or a term that means the director is the kind of artistic hand in the film. Definitely, that it's the division of the auteur that that gives the the film its particular, I guess, stamp of meaning or style. Yeah. Exactly. So, but you did. Uh, did we? Did you complicate that at the beginning by talking about how many hands? <laughs> How many hands are involved in this particular? Yeah, film? that's a good way to put. It. I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to all tour theory very much. Um, but yeah, it's 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 worth. It's another thing to to yeah. consider when you watch <laughs> Boonwell films. What are the things that uh, that you see that are repeated in his films, uh, irrespective of who's collaborating with him? Um, it's another thing to consider. It's yeah. and, and, and I don't want to say that it's it's a it's a it's a question that can't be answered, but right. it's a uh, it's definitely definitely complicated. Well, you've got to understand as uh, you know after watching a, or and reading enough about Wells Orson Wells that that um, a person uses what's at hand. You know, you t- you take the skills from others around you and you let them, of course, be part of the 
part of the production, part of the art, part of, you know, it takes all those visions, all those energies. Uh, someone does channel it at some point, I suppose. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. That, that, that may be as much an auteur idea as anything else. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Good way to well, put it. Jonathan, thanks for joining us on Interchange. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. Well, then you better run. Run, Somebody's calling well, you. you better run. Run, Somebody's calling well, you. you better run. Somebody's calling well, you. Well, I feel like my time well, Yes, sir. That's our show. We'll close with Sinner Man, performed by the Swan Silvertone. This was recorded at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1959. A version sung by Leon Bibb opens and closes The Young One. Sinner Man is an African-American traditional spiritual song in which a sinner attempts to hide from divine justice on Judgment Day. Thanks to Jonathan Reisner for joining us. His forthcoming book from SUNY Press is Blood Circuits, Contemporary Argentine Horror Cinema. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. It's gonna sound in the dead Christ is gonna ride hey, hey, hey. if you ain't got good religion Down in hell you will open the door